This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass for today. My name is James Roy. I am your host. I am talking today with Dr. Lee Kaufman. How are you, Lee? Are you well? I'm good, James. I'm really glad to be talking to you. So you're you're in Melbourne, right? Yes. And you tell yes. me that you're about to about to jump on a plane and fly to uh, to Darwin for the Northern Territory Writers Festival. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I'm taking lots of to take lots of books with me. Yeah. Can you pick me up on the way through? I've never been to Darwin. I wouldn't mind going actually. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're sure. You're very welcome to come. <laughs> okay, it'll be fun. So a little bit about Lee. Lee is a Russian-born Israeli-Australian writer who's written a number of books, novels and, and memoir and also uh, poetry and essays and and all the rest and is also a, uh, a full-time writing teacher and writer now. And in your bio, Lee, it says that... Um, you spend a lot of time wrestling with the art and craft of writing and passionate reading, and that's what your new book is really about. Um, so yeah. let's just get straight into that. I mean, the first question is going to be a truism, which I think everybody listening will immediately identify as such, and how important is reading to a writer's craft? We can, I think we can answer that one pretty quickly, right? Well, look, I think that it's actually about 50% of what we do. Uh, when we sort of already in the habit of writing, but before we start writing, I think it should be 100%. I think we should read a lot before we actually even start writing. And most writers I know, they usually come to writing because they love books, because they're already readers, so it's pretty um, yeah, obvious. But, uh, but I think the trick for writers is uh, not just to read, but to read as writers, and that means to read analytically. So uh, it's not always for pleasure. It can be both pleasure and work. But that's why books I really love, I often would read them sort of first for pleasure and then I'll read them again and try to unpick what kind of tricks the writer used, what actually works for me so well. And sometimes I also find useful to read a book again or read analytically a book I don't like and think, what well, it doesn't work, what can I learn from, from this particular book? So really, I think the best way for writers to read is to steal. It was Picasso who first said that all art is theft, but... Um, to still not not sentences, not not plagiarized, but uh, those sort of tricks of craft. There's a key word in that line that I just quoted to you about passionate reading. How would you define passionate reading? So I think also um, it's, a, it's reading analytically, but also we we really need to read passionately and, and broadly. So as broadly as possible. I believe that um, it's not true that any reading will do. I know that some writing teachers kind of say these sort of things, but I don't agree with this. I think um, to what we read is actually going to directly affect what we write. And so if we just sort of stay with the re- most recent contemporary novel that was published, even if it's a very good novel, it's just not the same as reading really broadly across cultures, across history, really going to the great. It's a bit like if, if a writer is a musician, Sorry, if you are a musician, you, you will be told always to first go and 
practice to, you know, to play Beethoven or Mozart. So I think it's exactly the same for writers. It's this passionate reading, passionate moments with books which are big and great and, and already sort of time proven as well. So I think, uh, I think the best sort of way of reading really is to read a mixture of contemporary uh, works, um, classics, and once again, not to focus just on, say, uh, Australian writers or just American writers, or, but really go as broadly as possible. I started very early as a child um, reading across cultures. I remember as a child already really loving Japanese fairy tales that read Indonesian folklore or ancient Greek mythology. And, and I think those sort of things really stayed with me. And I think whatever in my writing might be okay, um, it's probably noted by those those sort of beginnings. Yeah, because Australian literature does have a does have a bit of an Anglo-centric, in, historically has had Anglo-centric kind of uh, bent, hasn't it? Yeah, and look, it's understandable. Of course, we want to read what our, well, of course, we want to read sort of um, about ourselves and understand ourselves better, and that's very good. I, I read plenty of Australian books since I moved here. I've read, I read every year quite a lot, but uh, it, it, it's all a matter of balance, really. So to read Australian literature, and but also read many other literatures, and not just English uh, from English cultures. Absolutely, it really um, because I think I mean I know that some young writers who come to my classes. I never heard this from older writers, but young writers sometimes come to my classes and say things like, "Oh, but I don't want to read too much because I don't want to write like other people. I want to be original." But you can't really be original without knowing what went before. You're actually much more susceptible to cliches if you haven't read. Plus, if you read broadly and across cultures, it's very hard to copy one particular writer. You will have more, you more like you'll have this kind of cocktail of very delicious, very different voices. But I, I see as kind of fertilizers that create the control for our own creativity. I'm sorry, that this metaphor probably a bit clumsy, but still, I really do believe that um, uh, reading is a fertilizer for, for our own work. It's a nice way to put it. I mean, if. If, for no. example, you've written you've written a lot of poetry over the years, what do you see as the role of reading poetry? Um, we're going to get onto how how poetry plays a part in writing prose, but uh, what role does poetry play in in reading poetry play in your uh, practice? James, mm-hmm. uh, I think you think higher of me than I really am. <laughs> I, I did write poetry and I, did, I do read poetry, but not enough, never enough. Um, but I think um, every time I do manage to read some poetry, some good poetry, um, it just really opens my mind more and more into what is possible in prose, because prose is my focus. The poems that just sometimes happen and I write them, I don't. It's not like my real focus kind of day-to-day kind of writing. I find sometimes, I find poetry very good when I'm stuck in writing, like when I go to, when I wake up and I'm just not in the mood to write and I just kind of feel a bit flat about my work or whatever. And then if I take, uh, let's say, I dip into a few poems by somebody like, I don't know, Marina Tsvetaeva, who is one of my favorite Russian poets, or um, more locally, I really love Andy Jackson's work, for example, or Alex Kovron. So if I go and I sort of dip into some uh, a few poems before starting a writing session, usually it opens something, it kind of like opens my subconscious, I would say. And uh, sometimes things I didn't anticipate come up, uh, come out. And I think it's, it's something to do with poetry because poetry often 
affected on this uh, really subterranean, uh, sorry, mispronounced the word, but subterranean kind of level, the deep level. It is a kind of gate to the subconscious, I think. And writers, prose writers, just as poets, they really need to connect to that part to create good work. Even there's even now a lot of neuroscientific research into creativity that shows that a big part of our cre- creation, if not most of it, comes from from the gut, from from the kind of down down under kind of region mm-hmm. of our brain. In in your your latest book, which is called The Writer Laid Bare. Um, I'm just going to read the blurb or the first part of the blurb for this book. It says it's a combination of raw memoir and a professional writing toolkit. Lee examines her own life, rich in story and emotion, to reveal how committing to a truthful writing practice helped her conquer writer's block and develop her own authentic voice. I'd like to focus primarily on the toolkit and the writer's block, if that's okay. Okay. Um, look, I, I had a really debilitating, actually, writer's block. I suffered. It went for about four years. And Whoa, I know some four, writers. Four don't, years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was really full on. It was in my early 30s, and I just, well, I was still new in Australia, so transitioning to writing from Hebrew to English, and it was quite tough. Uh, now, when I say writer's block, that writer's block that lasted four years, I actually don't mean that I wasn't writing. Because writer's block is a condition where you really, it's a kind of condition of fear, of, of where you're really anxious about writing. And in different writers, it expresses itself in with different symptoms. So some writers can't write. In my case, I could write. But I wasn't really writing from the true kind of honest place in myself. So I didn't come up with good work. And I also lost this ability to, this is also to do with honesty. I kind of lost this ability of reflections and see what of my writing was good and what was not. So I, I lost that critical faculty during that time. So sometimes, occasionally, I would publish um, something, it would be, and it would be an okay, okay work, but it just did not correspond. The amount of, of works that I produced with the, of the publishable standard just did not correspond to the enormous amount of labor I put in those four years, struggling and struggling, but kind of... And so how, how to get out of the blog? One of the reasons I wrote this book, I kind of thought of thinking, well, what, what kind of, what would have helped me at, the, at that time? Because really, I did not need to be blocked for such a long time. If I, and if I had some tiny advice, I think it wouldn't have lasted so long. But um, I was pretty isolated during those four years. I didn't still know, you know, many writers in Australia. I was kind of on my own in this in this um, uh, experience. Um, so, so it, I kind of course explain everything about all the sort of different strategies that I've, I've now f- find useful uh, to prevent this kind of situation in myself or, or, or to help my students or writers and mentor. But um, just in a nutshell, just very briefly, um, I think to make sure we don't get blocked, I'll just give a few examples. So emotional honesty really is the key uh, with this. And, it, and I think about emotional honesty when I talk about writing process as, as honesty with yourself, as self-reflection and understanding what you need. So I think one of the key things for not becoming blocked or unblocking yourself as quickly as possible is um, to be really aware of what it is that you need to write. So one of my problems at the time was that I was just trying to write what I thought will please others. And I kind of just lost touch with my gut and didn't believe that what I really wanted to write, anybody will read. So, so it sort of starts from there already. 
but then there are many lots, uh, many many kind of practical tools that writers can use to help them if they feel um, if they feel the way I felt in those years. And one of them, one really good strategy that seems to work not just for me but for other people is um, if you feel really blocked, imagine you writing whatever it is that you're writing to just one person and choose a person who um, uh, you're quite close with and who you know uh, really sort of won't judge you, who really want to hear what you have to say, but also won't let you, give, let you get away with bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you can think about one person like this and just sort of maybe write every day a few passages, just even like for half an hour, 20 minutes, but addressing it to this person, Sometimes it can, can, it can turn what you're doing around and can make you fall in love again with your project and feel more confident again about your voice. Why do you think that is? I mean, it, it, you're still going to be, as you're doing your writing, you're still going to be going, oh, is that something that I really want to share with my reader? You're still going to have to have that, that sense of um, you know, ongoing appraisal. Is it just a matter of getting in the habit of going close to what you're prepared to reveal? Well, one of the things, another strategy that I talk a lot about in the book and it's sort of related to what you're asking me, James, is it's developing a particular self-talk or a few different types of self-talk. And I find it, that it, I find it really useful for me and in my experience with some other writers, I think they seem to find it useful as well. It's to sort of keep tricking yourself as you go and write and, and as if you're just writing for yourself. If there's nobody else who's going to read it. And I think it's fairly easy to do this with once you master this self-talk, it's fairly easy to do this with first draft because really it's true. It's not even tricking yourself. Those early drafts, nobody will see them. We just will not get it eventually. But if you don't start with the first draft and really write there what you what it is that you want to write, even if it's outrageous, doesn't make sense. I don't know for what it, not interesting as you think, not interesting to other people perhaps. It doesn't matter because later you later you can sort of. Uh, all writing really is rewriting. Later, you can step it into something much better. But it's really, if you don't start with this story, the real, what means, if you don't start with writing for yourself first, before pleasing the others, I don't think you writers will have, let's say, anything living on the page, anything then to work with later. The heartbeat just won't be there. And without heartbeat, what can you do with the material? And, and that's why I think this trick of imagining that you're writing to somebody, to this one person, and maybe not imagining, maybe really asking a friend or somebody else who you kind of really trust to do to kind of to ask their permission if you can send them something, send them material regularly. Um, it's the same thing because you're imagining instead of that you're writing for yourself, you're imagining it's writing for one person who really is keen and eager to hear from you whatever it is that you want to tell. Does that make sense or not really? Yeah, it does. When you look at archives, for example, there's a there's a Lou Reese archive in, uh, I think, at the National, the National Library in Canberra, where lots of mm-hmm. uh, children's and young adult writers have sent in their, their entire back catalogue, uh, sorry, their entire, you know, all their drafts and so forth. And yeah, of course, yeah. these days, oftentimes that draft doesn't ever see the light of day because it just remains on your hard drive. Although, yeah. we do recommend people print it out and, and do it on paper. But um, if if that was the case. Would you feel comfortable having some scholar down the down the way actually going through your very first draft, or or is that one that you'd like to keep private? Hmm. 
That's a good question. To be honest, James, I've never thought about it before. Uh, and it's not about me feeling comfortable. Uh, yes, of course I will be. I just never kind of can imagine what any scholar would want to go over my first job. <laughs> but yes, if, if there was such a scholar, strangely enough, I would definitely be comfortable with that. I suppose maybe I'm immune to this because I'm a mental writer and I edit as well. I work as an editor occasionally and uh, I'm just so used to first draft. Mm. So I kind of, it doesn't feel to me a big deal that I don't have this thing, no. I was mentioning someone the other day and I, I may have even mentioned on one of the podcasts that I went down to the, uh, years ago went to the exhibition at the uh, the moving image um place in Melbourne at uh, at Fed Square there and they had yeah. an exhibition of Tim Burton's work you know Edward Scissorhands oh, yeah? and so forth they had all the costumes yeah. and all those things but he also had his some of his writing from when he was just at school and it really wasn't very good and I, I took great <laughs> I, I use that as a great source of encouragement for students when I'm talking to them I, I tell them you know Tim Burton who's got this incre- incredible imagination and this great vision and all this creativity and success he actually wasn't that good a writer, at least that, certainly the first draft. So I think that's something to be feel confident about, don't you think? Absolutely. I totally agree. And look, I've worked with a lot of um, Australian writers who are quite famous. Of course, I won't be naming names. But, uh, <laughs> oh, go after on. That you, <laughs> after that, you really see that first draft, everybody struggles with first draft, you know. Yeah, because there was a book a few years ago by I think Sue Wolf and Kate Grenville. It was oh yeah 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 Ma- I've got making stories yes. where they they, yes, yes. they went into ten great great Australian books or f- actually nine great Australian books and one other one, uh, but um, <laughs> and they sort of unpacked it and uh, yeah they were very early drafts and yeah it was quite revealing to see people like Patrick White and, and David Island and these guys some of their early drafts they. There, there was a lot of a uh, lot of water water flowed on the bridge between draft one and and what was published. Absolutely, I actually think it's a wonderful book, and I use some of its insights in my own, in the writer like Bear and mm. um, uh, and it's, I think, but I think you know what seems very messy first draft. I think it's also it, it, it's not only I don't think even if you have a very messy first draft, it necessarily reflects badly on you as a writer. To me, often a first draft, particularly if it doesn't make any sense. What it tells me is that this writer is actually quite courageous. And I'm not trying to be cheesy about it. I really mean it. Because this writer actually goes and explores things. In, it's like seeing a writer really wandering in this wilderness rather than putting a straight jacket on themselves straight away from the start. They're actually exploring. They're actually trying different things, seeing what works. And to me, this is... Uh, look, everybody has their own style. But for me, this is kind of the most exciting uh, part of exploration. I know that whenever I allowed myself to be extremely messy at the start, um, I came up with much more interesting connections between seemingly unrelated topics in, in the in the final sort of um, draft. So, for example, when I was writing my memoir, The Dangerous Bride, which started as a story about my non-monogamous um, relationship, I thought it would be like really all about my love life. But because I let myself uh, to roam in this wilderness, I just mentioned. Um, I ended up writing lots of words about other aspects of my life, migration and my, the fact that I was brought up religious. And a lot of this stuff did not make it into the final draft. Mm. But the book did become, the subtitle ended up being A Memoir of Love, God and Geography because I realized that uh, the fact that I twice migrated and the fact that I was brought up in a very religious 
um, household actually shaped my love life as well. What I wanted from love, what I was seeking. Mm. But I think if I if I had a plan from the start, I'm going to write a book about non-monogamy and sort of conscientiously following it. Um, I just don't think I would have arrived at those conclusions. Just speaking generally, by which draft would you go? Okay, this book is about this particular thing. At what point have you made that decision? Does it vary from book to book? It does vary from book to book. Um, but normally, look. I think also that we should define what first draft is and for different people, different things. For me, what I'm trying, when I'm kind of exploring in very messy, it's not even sort of first draft. It's just more like I create those folders, long folders full of disconnected sentences or scenes and bits and pieces of research and things like this. But to me, this is not a draft yet. Mm. My first draft usually is when I start thinking, okay, and I think I've got the structure for this. Let now I'm going to start and sort of uh, put it all together and see what gaps I still have. This is sort of my first draft. So my 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 very initial draft, the messy messy messy. My first draft where I kind of tell most of the overarching story mm. or all of the overarching story. They usually not as messy, but just the voice they won't be so. Uh, you know, won't be very sort of, I'll try not to say good because I don't think they're ever good, but you know, like it won't be as sort of polished as uh, it will be later on. And is your second, third, et cetera, draft, is it actually writing fresh onto a page, working from your other manuscript, or are you, are you playing with the words on the screen? Um, usually uh, once I'm ready to write a proper first draft, I uh, open a new document. What about your second and third draft? Uh, I use the same document. Oh, okay. I don't usually, yes. Yeah, so they all mesh together. So there won't be any archives with my second yeah. and third draft. Um, but, I, but I do, I, I am a writer who believes, who drafts a lot. And what I try to do is I call this process layering. It's not yeah. something I invented, but I just think about it in this way as layering. So I try not to achieve too much in every draft. Because otherwise I get too stressed and worried about things and I end up not doing anything. So I kind of give myself, once I've got the first draft, then I give myself kind of broad tasks such as like the next draft is to work out the structure, to find to fine tune the structure. Next draft, I'm going to work more on the voice. Next draft, I'm going to work more on the characters, you know, stuff like this. I mean, it's not that organized, but that's, the main point is I just not try in every draft not try to achieve too much. And then what happens with me, why it works for me well, is because doing so many drafts means I'm really um, used to the story. I'm really kind of really familiar with the story. It sits really well in my memory. So just become, I've become more and more intimate. So every redraft is a bit easier because of that as well. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, basketball player who was asked about his uh, free throw technique because he is is um, you know, shooting at ninety five percent or something free throws for a season, and he said you just got to trust the process. Do you think it's a you know and trust that all that work that you've done is actually going to stand stand you in good stead? Is it sometimes a matter of just going, all right, we're into this draft now, and I, I'm a little bit lost as to where it's going, but I just have to trust that it's going to get there because it's been there before. Yes, but I think before, I, mean, I know this phrase, trust the process is kind of, it's a catchphrase, and I appreciate this, and I sort of to an extent agree with this, but I think before we start trusting the process, 
what really is important, and this is really what the writing life there is about. Mm. What is really important is what writers as early as possible work out what works for them because the process is not the process, it's a process. So it's so many different types of work so differently. We have some commonalities, but we all have our little quirks, even even in, in things like, you know, where do you like to write? Do you sit at the desk? Do you lie on the bed in your pajamas? Do you go to a cafe? Do you, you know, do you work? <laughs> I, I interviewed um, a couple of days ago Carrie Sackville, and she, she said she sometimes walks around Westfield, and people think she's just not doing anything, but she's actually writing because she, mm. she is with a dictaphone and she's talking to the dictaphone. So I think, um, I think really, I will find you this as a younger writer. That, that was, it took me years to understand how important it is to actually develop this really active self-reflection. And that's what emotional honesty is about too for me. Because in this book, I really look at the phenomenon of emotional honesty as a framework that can help us to write. So I look at what is emotionally honest writing on the page, but also how we can um, get closer to understanding what type of writers we are. And yeah. also, I'm talking about emotional honesty and how to sort of live your life in ways as conducive as possible to being a writer. Because the, the choices we make in our daily lives about when to write, how much time to put into writing, I mean, they're so important. Um, I, I even sort of delayed having children because, because I wanted to, to be a writer. So all these things I had to think about. I'm not saying my choice was right or wrong. I think for me it was right, but you know, it's not about finding the recipe how to do it. It's about finding the recipe, the individual recipe, I suppose. And and varies from book to book slightly, I guess, as well. Um, for me personally, it doesn't vary from book to book. It's more where I am at in my life. So for me, I noticed that when I moved to Australia and started writing in English, my voice on the page changed because mm. I changed as a person. I think. I think sometimes when writers sort of undergo personal changes and, and, and uh, their writing may change as well, but it could be from book to book if we change genres. Definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of hesitating because my last few books are all in the same genre of creating nonfiction, but, I, but I'm actually thinking of writing a novel soon again. My first three books were fiction. So I think I probably you write. Probably when, when I start writing this novel finally, hopefully, um, are probably, again, some of my writing habits may change your eyes. So the, the last thing I want to ask you is, is this. Now, when, when, I, when my first book was published, I said at my launch that, um, you know, I, I thanked, facetiously, I thanked my, my toddlers and my children for making me feel like I'd really achieved something because they'd been at my feet the whole time. But in actual fact, my wife corrected me shortly after that and said, yes, they were there, but they were being looked after by someone else, namely her. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, 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 I do take that point. I would not disagree with that. You talk about uh, combining your writing with motherhood and that led you to recognise something called the pram in the hall issue. Can you talk about that just briefly? Yes, sure, sure. It's such a complex topic, isn't it? I'm still wrestling with trying to understand to what extent my children are. <laughs> Having the fact that I have children... Uh, detracts from my writing and to what extent it helps my writing because mm. paradoxically since I had children so I thought I was convinced I wouldn't be able to be a writer before if I had children for a long time 
And so that's why I had my first child when I was almost 40. So I really took a big chance that I could have missed my boss, you know, with the fertility and all that. But anyway, I was lucky. I did get two children. <laughs> in my, uh, <laughs> But um, after my children came along, I actually paradoxically became a much, more, much, much, much more productive and prolific writer. I'm still not very prolific, but I'm, I'm only talking relatively to how I used to be. And that's because I just don't have any more the luxury of procrastinating. <laughs> so I kind of, I'm, I surprise myself. These days I can even sort of like sit in a car, uh, wait for, you know, during the school pickup, I can sit in a car, wait for my kids to come out of school and write in those five, ten mm. minutes and write something. I've never, I was never able to do this before. But on the other hand, and I, so I don't want to go all romantic and sentimental about it. On the other hand, sorry, positive, positive about it. On the other hand, there's a really big thing with, with sort of I'm missing since I, as, as a writer, since I had my kids. And that, um, this, it's again related to time. It's this sort of daydreaming space. Mm. It's not just the time. Sometimes I can go to, I can sort of snatch a couple of days and go to writing residency now that they're a little bit older. Um, they six and nine, but um, still, even then, I because my head is so cluttered with so many practical things, school lunches, uh, doctor appointments, you know, oh. all those sort of things. That, that just never ending. That's in addition to my, you know, paid work as well. I just kind of it's much harder for me to get into those mellow, poetic, reflective kind of slow spaces which I really need to access my subconscious. Maybe you need, so to, write, maybe you need to write children's books and just, just mine, mine your children for ideas. I think for you, Jens, because you're a children and young adult writer, sort of, um, I mean, probably it will be easier. In my case, my writing actually comes probably from the same place that my sexuality comes. It's a more erotic space. Mm-hmm. And, and, and motherhood really interferes with my erotic space, you know, both, in both ways, you know. So I, um, I do struggle. I do struggle. I need, I need to, to be wilder to, to write better. <laughs> so what, what I thought you were going to say when you're saying that you became a different writer when you, you had children, I thought you were going to say that, you know, I thought you were going to say something very um, profound like, uh, I found my, a different part of myself and I, and, and <laughs> no, I, I, I found a, a different <laughs> sense of humanity within me that I didn't know existed until I had a little person relying on me. But no, you're literally talking about having to pick them up from school and not being able to uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm too cynical for that, yeah. <laughs> also, you know what, Jen, I'll tell you what, I, uh, this, is sort of, this, to do with my, this is how life I think is now sort of interacts. I mean, I, I'm the oldest child in my family and my three brothers are much younger. And because I was a child of migrants as well, I had to look after my, my brothers for for a very long time as a as a young girl. So I know there's nothing romantic or new. When I had my first child, there was nothing very new about it. <laughs> it was my child. It was yours. The, the ultimate responsibility was yours now. Yeah. Exactly right. So, yeah. so there was nothing sort of like I discovered in this new part. I already knew all about nappies and, and, and cute mm. little babies and all that sort of stuff. Indeed. So no, no, no epiphany there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so my, ver- my very last question for you, um, it's a very quick one, but uh, the library guru Nancy Pearl says that readers, she's talking about young readers, but I think it applies to all, readers get into story through one of four doors, through language or character 
or plot or setting. And I would argue that you do the same as a writer. Which door do you like to go through? That's a beautiful question. Definitely language and character. Or do I have to choose one door? No, no, no. no, no. I, I'm just interested. There's yeah. so much to those, yeah. <laughs> language and character and, and everything else has to kind of squeeze in around that. They're obviously important, but they just need to be... Both, but I must say, like, you know, when I was younger, I used to read really for words uh, and nothing else mattered. But now that I'm older and grumpier <laughs> <laughs> and less patient, I do need plots, very much so. So I, I, I sort of have less tolerance now for men doing literary prose. I still really love literary books. Um, don't misunderstand me, but I just kind of expect of them more and make mm. more demands mm. on them. I, I definitely expect uh, strong plot as well. So the name of the new book is uh, The Writer Laid Bare, published by, yes. published by whom? By uh, Ventura Press. Ventura Press, okay. So, uh, and that's available from all good bookstores online and in real bricks and mortar stores, I'm sure. So, Lee, thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. Your website is leekoffman.com.au. Yes, uh, thank you so much, James. And it's been fun talking to you and we'll talk again soon. It was great talking to you too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.